Welcome to the Politics of Special Forces podcast. In this 10-part limited series, join me, Kevin D. Stringer, and me, Christian Breed, as we examine just what Special Operations Forces, or SOF, does, and how that might need to change as we move into this new era of great power competition. Hello. Today, Kevin and I have a conversation with Dr. Itan Shamir and Dr. Eyal Benari. For those of you who have been listening to the series, these names should sound familiar. Itan and Eyal's 2016 article, The Rise of SOF, has proven to be one of the most influential papers on special operations forces for my own research into this space. And indeed, their article is required reading for courses I teach on war and conflict. Needless to say, it was a thrill to get to chat with these two gentlemen in real time. Dr. Eyal Benari is a former professor of sociology and anthropology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and currently a senior fellow in the Jerusalem Institute for Security and Strategy. He has carried out work in Israel, Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. His academic career spans more than 40 years, but during the past two decades he's focused on issues relating to the armed forces to include work on special forces and the way social change have influenced how military forces use their destructive power. Dr. Itan Shamir is a senior, fellow, senior lecturer at the Political Science Department in Ben Ian University, where he is the head of the MA program in Security Studies and Strategy. He is also a senior research fellow with the Bengen Sadat Center for Strategic Studies, FASA Center. Prior to his academic position, he oversaw the National Security Doctrine Department at the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in the Prime Minister's Office of Israel. Before joining the ministry, he was a senior fellow at the Dado Center for Interdisciplinary Military Studies and the IDF General Headquarters. His research interests and publications focus on topics such as strategy, command, military innovation, and reforms in military culture. Our conversation covered a lot of ground, and while we were focused on the Israeli experience of special operations forces, we touched on current events as well to include the ongoing war in Eastern Europe between Russia and Ukraine. So without further delay, here is our conversation with Dr. Eyal Benari and Dr. Itan Shamir. Itan, Eyal, thank you so much for joining us this morning, uh, or this afternoon, I guess, given the time zones. For me, it's the morning. For, for you folks, I guess it's mid-afternoon uh, or late afternoon, but uh, thank you so much for this. Um, I'm personally very excited to be able to sit down uh, with both of you, uh, given that we've, we've talked a lot about your framework. Um, and so this is, this is a bit of a thrill for me to, to be able to really speak to, literally from the horse's mouth, get the, get the theory. So thank you, gentlemen, so much for, for carving out the time. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we'll get right into it. Um, so like I said, your article, The Rise of SOF uh, in the Journal for Strategic Studies, is coming on six years since publication. So how is your framework for specialized generalists, autonomy, and boundary spanning, which listeners of the podcast will, will know quite well, We've, we come back to this all the time. How has that framework uh, really held up in the way you think about special operations forces? And do you have any revisions that you might propose to your framework, you know, looking back six years ago? Peter, I'll go. Um, first of all, looking back at things and the discussions between Peter and I during the past six years, uh, in general, I think our general argument stands, still stands in terms of, uh, if you like, the main functions or the main characteristics of special forces, special operations forces, depending on the military, different designations. I think our thesis still stands, and uh, to a great extent, because the character of war has not changed that much. Uh, although we may want to devote a few, uh, few minutes to the war in, the U in, the, in Ukraine. Um, what 
we do see as, uh, if you like, uh, especially, uh, I would say, I would say salient during the past few years is that uh, the generalized specialization of the uh, soft forces is something that holds. And when we say generalized specialization, it's, it means that um, special forces operators are, um, to an extent, have the ability uh, based on selection, training, and so on, to specialize in a variety of, uh, if you like, uh, areas, um, uh, military roles, including civilian ones. But having said that, uh, throughout their training and in actual deployment, what they do very, very well is that they are able to uh, integrate uh, these di different specializations and if you like different bodies of knowledge in order to, uh, to enable uh, the conglomerate or the specific array of units within which they uh, operate to uh, uh, fully adapt to changing uh, condition. Eitan, do you want to pop in with something here or? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I generally, uh, you will be surprised, but generally I agree with you, Eyal. Um, I, 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 I do think that we might, what we see now in, in Ukraine might uh, signal uh, a change in the way uh, we are going to uh, see uh, army uh, force development and uh, possibly deployment in the next few years. I mean, this, is this might be a, a watershed event. Uh, however, I believe that uh, still the, uh, the special forces, uh, whether in the, all the parameters, working inside the parameters we saw so far, the last uh, two, three decades, uh, or in, even in a uh, larger, uh, larger concentration, uh, as I say, great, great, uh, great power competition, great power rivalry, they are still going to play a very important uh, part. And this is, has to do uh, also with the role of technology, uh, the expertise that they bring, uh, they bring to, the, uh, uh, to the arena, um, and their ability to be, uh, again, to, 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 to do uh, uh, a spectrum, a variety of, uh, of tasks. That's fascinating. Oh, sorry, sorry, Al, please. Uh, one more, uh, um, there are a number of points, but I would like to emphasize one more point that Eitan Abi and I have been discussing for at least 10, maybe 15 years. It's a process, I'm going to use an unwieldy English term, okay? It's a sort of, if you like, special forcification of the regular forces. Um, as, a, as, a, as actually a non-native speaker, I'm allowed to uh, massacre the English language. Now, more seriously, we see special forcification, special forcification in two senses. One, the special forces continue to be sites of experimentation for tactics, technology, um, organization arrays within they work, which means they, which, which, within which they work. And then it, if you like, um, once that, that these uh, skills, capacities have been mastered, they disseminate out to the wider regular uh, military. The second point, which we uh, refer to in special forcification, 
is that if you look, say, at the Israeli military, a, a battalion, even a company commander in a regular infantry brigade in Israel now works with, uh, uh, say, um, using firepower from an array of sources that was unthinkable, uh, say, 10 years ago, but while it was thinkable in terms of the special operations. So we have, a, if you like, a uh, certain characteristics now of the, uh, of the regular forces, which uh, are similar in a sense to what was developed in the special forces. Yes, that's, that's and, and to, to add to Rial, it's, it, it, it manifests itself also in the way uh, units are using uniforms, units that are using different gadgets and accessories. So first you see it in the, introduced in the special forces, and whatever is used in the special forces and introduced in the special forces, you know that it will trickle down uh, after uh, a period of time, whatever, months or a few years, and it will be part of the a more regular army. I mean, you, you're going to see it in the regular army, whether it's the helmets, whether it's the uh, uh, flak jackets, the, the, the small arms, uh, and again, the, the, the various uh, gadgets that uh, we see today. Uh, uh, and, and so there is a definitely uh, a diffusion of that from the special forces to the regular army. That, that actually, that tracks with some of my own personal experiences. I just think of what my, my last deployed operation, which was you know, years ago now, uh, but in Afghanistan with the provincial reconstruction team. And there as a conventional infantry officer, my rifle company that I was the second in command of was tasked with a variety of, of activities that traditionally were in the wheelhouse of special forces, which was foreign internal defense, development, you know, VIP security, things like that, which I thought was really interesting. And from our perspective, I think that really is a demand side uh, challenge in that the demand for the skill set outstrip the supply yeah and so and i had my colleagues doing uh who fo we had an entire like our colleagues of mine focused on internal defense and almost entirely doing uh doing training of indigenous forces working with the afghan national security forces right like this is this is a classic soft task that fell at this point to conventional forces and i'll be honest this was certainly some of the one of the reasons why i got into this area to discover it and, and to research is because i was like wow this is this is really interesting but i think your point about ukraine is is apt as well and that things are flipping and, and this is something we've seen in a lot of uh, a lot of our research too that really parallels us. So it's, it's it's interesting to see that that you are coming to the same conclusion. And then the last point I just want to highlight is this, the idea of soft as integrator. I think is is incredibly important. And it's again it's come up uh, time and again. Um, and this idea of specialized generalists certainly when I when this gets to my students, um, this is the point that they continuously come back to as being the most interesting, and the one that they're like, of course, yeah, like that makes sense. That is what. That's their value proposition, and I think it's I think it's it's really really interesting to see it um, have that kind of pragmatic application right out of the gate, which I think is is, is really great. Uh, Kevin, over to you. One of the exciting things about uh, the podcast and, and you being participants is we're trying to offer our readership and listenership insights to foreign special operations forces and Israeli defense forces have built up quite a reputation. In, in their soft world. I was wondering if you could provide for an international audience a primer. What is this world like? What's in it? What's not? And then the follow-up question, this depth command that was established a couple of years ago. You could, you could talk about that, but first of all, maybe primer, and then how are they 
led or command and controlled? Okay, I'll, I'll uh, maybe maybe I'll, I'll go to the roots of the Israeli Special Forces historical roots. Uh, so pay a quick uh, visit, uh, and uh, we'll mention some of the historical evolution of the Special Israeli Special Forces, and then we can talk a little bit about the uh, special characteristics of the Israeli Special Operation Forces, because there are many characteristics that are uh, very similar to uh, what we what what we see in other Western countries, such as Canada, US, UK, Australia. Uh, but there are also some characteristics that are unique to the, to the IDF, uh, of course, as part of its uh, unique uh, setting and, and situation. Um, so going, going back to, going back uh, in, to history, uh, there, was a, there were a few units uh, already formed pre-state, the pre-state of Israel. Uh, the most famous one is what we call the Palmach, which is the striking uh, companies in English. Uh, these, these were formed by the, actually the British when Rommel uh, was approaching uh, uh, then Palestine. Uh, uh, the idea was to prepare a Jewish uh, insurgency to fight the Germans. Uh, Thereafter, the Palmach, uh, um, the Palmach was, um, was doing some raiding and intelligence collecting in French Vichy in Lebanon. And during the independence war, the Palmach uh, became the, the, uh, the elite forces of the, of the IDF. This was during the independence war. After the independence war, uh, the Palmach was disbanded. And many other units of the IDF were disbanded, and the, the units that became um, the, the primary, the primary special forces unit in the IDF was known as Unit 101. And this unit was formed uh, as a response to a problem of uh, Arab uh, infiltration into Israel, uh, sabotagers and terrorists uh, that came across the border. And the purpose of the unit it was again raiding. They, the, the leader of the unit was Ariel Sharon, who later became a famous general in the Israeli army. Um, now, interestingly, when this unit was formed, Moshe Dayan, who was then the uh, uh, chief of the general staff branch, uh, opposed uh, the idea of having such a unit because Dayan believed that the, the, the big army should be able to conduct uh, uh, raiding operations. He didn't, he didn't believe in small uh, uh, specialized units, such as uh, Unit 101. Uh, and uh, interestingly, Unit 101 uh, proved itself, and Dayan became, uh, uh, after a while, a, a great supporter of this unit, um, became its uh, patron in a way. Uh, but after a few months, he decided to merge the units with the Paratroop Battalion uh in order to bring the knowledge that was acquired in this unit into the the Pratrup brigade which was at that time was quite a, a useless brigade that uh was sitting in its barracks and polishing its uh, shoes and not doing much more than that uh and this merger was uh, became a, a success and after a while what Dayan did was sending a unit of the Pratrups with other units of the regular army 
So the, his idea was very uh, sophisticated in a way. He used unit one one to change the power troopers, and then he used the power troopers to change the entire uh, culture of the Israeli army and to raise its standard uh, in many ways. So uh, if we are talking about um, how special operation units are kind of a role model and how they help to um, how they how the how the uh, how they facilitate change um, in in the larger army. This is a very good case example to learn from, as how such a unit can uh, uh, can do this uh, can do this shift. I will stop here and let maybe Yal, uh, if he wants to uh, add anything. Be before handing it over to back to Eitan, uh, we should emphasize, however, that in Israel. Uh, in contrast, say to the U.S. or Britain, or I think most other most other democracies, uh, the special forces are staffed by conscripts. That is, they do do not go to, a, if you like, a regular, say, paratroop or infantry uh, unit, and then at the later stage of their career join the special forces. Rather, they're conscripted based on, uh, I would say, quite strict selection. They are channeled and recruited into the special forces, and in Eitan will probably uh, talk about their variety in a minute. And uh, for the past, I would say, um, decade, their uh, three years of conscription have been extended to at least four or five years. That is, they become, if you like, what we call uh, short-time regulars. That is, there are three years of conscripts in general, then another two years, simply so that they can give back the investment which they which uh, has been uh, uh, put into them. Uh, that's one. Second point is that in Israel we do not have a, um, a really a dedicated NCO, uh, if you like, skeleton or a backbone of the military. But in Israel, it's the junior officers which will fulfill most of the roles undertaken by NCOs in other places. And these uh, junior officers, uh, the, roughly the equivalent of, uh, say, squad leaders, platoon leaders, and so on, they usually uh, sign up for another year or two as well. And the final point I would make is that because of conscription, uh, the IDF uh, recruits two special forces and to other units as well, say the intelligence corps and so on, very high quality uh, uh, soldiers in terms of IQ, potential for promotion, um, uh, kind, the kinds of high schools they went to, and so on. Uh, and Eitan, maybe you want to say a little bit about the variety of uh, special forces? Yeah, absolutely. Let First of all, Yal's point is, is, is very important to understand because the, the first big difference that we have, uh, that we can observe between uh, the special forces that you know and we know from the West, from the Western countries, uh, and Israel is that, of course, the Israeli army is based on still on conscription. The basic conscription for men is three years, and if you sign, uh, in Adi, uh, if you sign as an officer or some kind of a specialized uh, profession that needs more uh, training, then usually you sign for another year or another year and a half. But this is the time that most uh, people serve in the IDF, and then you continue in the reserve. 
And by the way, we have a reserve special forces unit as well. Um, but we're going to talk about a minute to look at the uh, main special forces in the IDF. Uh, so we have uh, now, these days, um, we have established a three tier system as in the West, uh, as in the US. So the first tier, uh, the most uh, prestigious, the most trained, the most uh, highly qualified, and so on and so on, uh, are the three uh, main uh, units. One is the called Sayeret Matkal. Matkal is the most known uh, unit, maybe the most famous one, the unit that uh, uh, was, in, was leading the, for example, the Antebe, the famous Antebe raid in the 70s. Um, of course, these are the, 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 the those, those um, operations that were, pub, pub, that were publicized, but there are many, many cover, covert operations, clandestine operation, and so on. Uh, so Matkal unit, uh, Matkal unit belongs to the general staff branch. It's, a, it's mainly intelligence and reconnaissance, um, and it belongs to the staff branch. Uh, going back to what Eyal said about the quality of people, I will just mention that our current prime minister, Bennett, uh, has, Naftali Bennett has served in the Seret Matkal unit, and also the previous prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, came from Sayeret Matkal unit. Uh, uh, in general, this unit is, uh, uh, is a breeding school, I would say. I don't know if it's just the proper word in English, uh, uh, for, uh, for leaders in the Israeli society. I think this is another very different characteristic than if you look at SAS or if you look at the uh, American Delta Force. Um, obviously, they have very highly competent warriors but I don't see them later assuming a leadership role in academia, in, uh, in industry, in the industry, in the high-tech market, in the industry, and in politics, and in other areas of life. You can see their, uh, their alumni all over, all over the place. Uh, so this is, and, and, and this is very typical of Matkal. Uh, I think we are yet to look at for the research that will uncover how this unit was able to create so many uh, so many leaders. Uh, but this is also typical to the other two units in tier one. One is uh, Shaldag, which is the uh, equivalent unit of the Air Force. And it's uh, the other unit is uh, Putila 13, uh, uh, or we say commando, uh, the commando unit, commando 13, naval commando, which means it's equivalent to the naval, naval SEALs uh, in the US. Uh, and in other words, the SBS in Britain is, belongs to the Navy. Now we have tier two. Tier two is uh, now they have been all uh, brought together under what we call the Commander Brigade, which I think is somewhat along the ideas of the uh, US Rangers, uh, the Ranger Regiment. Um, but they also are, they have different components. The three different units with three different specialization. One is the GOS. Uh, specialized to fight in the north, mainly in the bush, in the areas of the bush of Lebanon, mount, mountain bush areas, uh, like a guerrilla force. Another is Maglan, which specializes in certain technologies, that stand of fire technologies. And the, the, the third unit is Dugdavan, which is mostly a unit, it's counterterrorism unit that, that operates in the West Bank and the Palestinian territories. Um, other than that, the tier three is uh, what 
you, you are familiar with is the recon, recon uh, elements of the various uh, infantry, elite infantry brigades. So they are the elite of the infantry, the elite, the elite of the elite infantry brigades. Um, just to add another sentence, um, the, in the free um, uh, tier one unit, Matkal, Shadag, and, and uh, Flotilla Fratin, there was a decision a few years ago uh, to change uh, the structure of the of the service, and uh, today, once they join, once they go through the selection process and they join the unit, they have to sign for eight years. But these eight years include a university degree, uh, because all on most of our conscripts they come in, uh, direct after high school. They join direct after high school to the military. So in the course of the eight years, they do a university degree and of two years. So it's kind of a compressed university degree, special program for the military. And they have to do an officer course, which is another half a year. So what you can understand from that, again, going back to the idea of the, the uh, YAL, we don't have like the, 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 the classic operator in the uh, special forces. With the, the classic operators who serve 10 years and as I say, the, the guy with the seven, 10 years uh, experience uh, uh, who is there and still kick, kick the door and put the bullet in Osama bin Laden head. It, it doesn't exist so much in the, in the IDF. The people who do it are actually officers. So the officers, they see themselves also as Operator. uh, operators, right? They do both. So there's a lot of uh, responsibility and a lot of burden on the officer's uh, shoulders. But also it means the, the, the other idea is that if you send everyone to officer course, uh, not all of them will come back to the, uh, to, the, to, the, to the unit. There's too many of them, too many officers. So what you do is you send them to the, to the larger army. And, and this is uh, intentional because you want to have these people with, which are very high quality people uh, and you need them uh, in the larger army to raise the quality of the larger army. Otherwise, you will have an island of excellent people and then the larger army of very, very medium uh, soldiers and commanders. So you cannot just keep them concentrate, con concentrated in the small units. So this is, this is part of the idea. Ethan, this has been a great, great overview of the soft landscape in Israel. I mean, I take a couple of things. It's interesting for me to hear how you derive your SF and special operations forces from conscripts. Although, as Yael said, it's, it's, they get extended as contract soldiers to a point. Uh, many of the previous discussions we've had, one of the issues with other countries is the recruitment of SOF, the challenges of, of recruiting sufficient numbers. And it sounds like the Israeli model brings some benefits. Um, also appreciate your description of the three tiers. I think that helps frame it much better between the the uh, Sariats, the very elite ones, tier one, the commandos, as you said, tier two, and then the various reconnaissance units. Um, before I pass though to Christian, this concept of depth command popped up a few years ago. I was actually in Israel being hosted by one of your units. Can you just quickly explain what is that and how does it relate to these three tiers? There the was, uh, uh, since you've been here, and this is a very uh, uh, 
characteristic of the Israeli uh, constant changes of organization and uh, structures, uh, it has changed again, the, the whole idea of uh, death command. Um, the, the, the idea was uh, to, first of all, to have some kind of a command structure that will oversee the operations of all unit and will optimize, will optimize and synchronize uh, as, 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 as the American and other advanced militaries have today. Um, in terms of using those, those forces. And in many ways, it was also looking at the, uh, uh, looking at uh, uh, power projection uh, far away uh, with the lookout to Iran. Uh, so having uh, to use forces far away in Israel and having to, to be able to, uh, uh, to, to command and control their operations so this was this was the idea behind the, the, uh, what they called the uh, Def, Def Command, and uh, I, I still I think it still exists, but it has evolved since because now we have also a special command that deals with Iran in the general staff, um, and there was some other development concerning the the, um, the Def Command. I'm not sure entirely exactly the nuances, but uh, it saw some changes since you've been here. Thanks for that that background. Over to you, Christian. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, this is yeah again fantastic primer, um, and we're gonna jump ahead a little bit in the plan here. Um, and uh, certainly, you know what you've articulated uh, really helps explain a lot of the, some of the challenges we're facing here in Canada with respect to you know, recruiting SOF and how you've been able to expand. And again, sort of some of the purposes of SOF. And I love this idea of having them as the incubator of good ideas that then ultimately can have a positive impact on the culture of the broader armed services. And I think that's fascinating and something that that uh, is worth worth exploring further. Um, so thank yeah. you again for sharing that. Sorry, Eitan, you, you wanted to, to jump on that. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot to mention the, the recent addition to the Israeli Special Forces, although there might, there might be some people who would question whether it's a special force or what it is exactly. Uh, but maybe it's worthwhile mentioning, as you, as you said, uh, in terms of being the incubator, uh, because the recent edition called is called the Ghost Unit. I don't know if you heard about it, the Ghost Unit. No. Uh, you can still uh, you can find some materials about it in the internet. Uh, this is the uh, the baby of the of the recent chief of staff, Avik Kohavi, who was no, taking the president, the, the president one, the president, the, the, one, the recent the, one. Ah, the the present one. Sorry, the recent one. Yeah, the, the present uh, chief of staff. And the, uh, this is a unit, the, the main idea of this unit is exactly, by the way, uh, it is exactly what we were trying to articulate in our article, is to make the, um, uh, the, 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 the area, the area of the, um, the many, many capabilities of the IDF and see how you can optimize them, how you can bring it together uh, to, to a unit, to a tactical unit that, uh, that operates in the field. Uh, so to have together all the different capabilities uh, in one unit, basically uh, all, all under one network. Um, so these are highly competent uh, soldiers from different units that were brought together with different capabilities. Uh, some of them are drone operators, some of them are robot operators, some of them are coming from different uh, different uh, special forces units. Um, and mainly what this, although this unit is, is, is already operational 
and it, it participated in the last operation in Gaza uh, a few months ago. Uh, but uh, its main purpose is to serve as, a, as you said, as a, as a lab and as an incubator for ideas to serve for the larger ideas. Fascinating. Um, and, and speaking of this, this sort of idea of change and, and whatnot, what I'd love to get from your perspective, uh, gentlemen, is, is has IDF Soft adapted or changed as we see this shift in general uh, around the world towards a return to great power competition? How have we seen, have we seen Israel, you know, do, you know, how have they addressed this? Is this something that's, 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 that's being driven in debates uh, in soft circles uh, in your area? Uh, Al, please. Well, this is more Eitan's uh, area of expertise, but um, I think it has to do with the Israel's threat environment. And uh, to put it really, uh, maybe even uh, in a too simple way, Israel has uh, three kinds of threats. One is uh, various kinds of terror attacks. The second one are, uh, are four edge, I would say. Second one are missiles from uh, Gaza and Lebanon, manned uh, and uh, by uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, respectively. Um, and behind them stand what uh, formal Israeli designations call terror armies. That is, they they parts of them look like a regular military, but they're far from conventional forces. Say that the Russians or the Ukrainians have, and so on. And the last kind of threat are the Iranians. Okay, Iran with uh, both as uh, the power behind these various uh, terror armies, if you like, and of course as having uh, potential for an atomic bomb. Um, so that um, the special forces are geared or adapted to those kinds of threats. Eitan, anything to add? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, will, I will say the following. Uh, in Israel's history, we always had a distinction between what was called routine security and basic security. Basic security was the threat of the big state-on-state -state wars. And to be honest, uh, the, during the uh, uh, big state-on-state -state wars, special operations did not play a very big role. I mean, they did, of course, they participated in the fighting, but they didn't have a, a decisive effect. Uh, and more, um, uh, and, and sometimes they were even used as, as regular infantry, elite infantry, but regular infantry. Now, some people say this, the reason was for, not, uh, for, for, for using it, like, like for, for not, not utilizing them uh, in the optimum way was a lack of, of planning and, and so forth. Uh, but the question is still open. Uh, and then we had the routine security. Routine security was always the terror and guerrilla, uh, low intensity warfare on our borders and beyond our borders. And in this, in this area, the special forces always played a very big and decisive role. I mean, they were spearheading this activity always. And we just mentioned Antebbe as, as one of them, but there were like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of operations uh, that special forces carried, uh, carried them. Um, now, the, the current situation is a bit confusing because it's kind of a, a blend between the two. 
so we have what Yal just called, uh, and this is a term that our, again, that the, uh, our current chief of staff ter uh, used as terror armies, which, and, and, and you know, in, and you also use the, the term uh, hybrid, hybrid uh, armies or hybrid warfare. So it's both regular and irregular. And there is a, a, a debate in Israel whether um, in this type of scenarios uh, that we are going to see fighting Hezbollah and Hamas uh, in the major operations, uh, whether the role of the special forces will be central or uh, we should invest more in the mass uh, mechanized armor uh, brigades and division. Um, and they are going to play the more uh, decisive, uh, decisive role. And, and I have to tell you, there's still, a, there's still an, an ongoing debate in the IDF. Of course, in a way we do both, uh, but the, 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 there is certainly a debate, a lively debate about it. Itan, that's uh, this concept of state on state and terror armies, I think shows this, this gray zone aspect that, that we're moving towards. What is a non-state actor? When do they become a state actor and vice versa? I guess in that regard, I'd be curious as, as I kind of ask the final question here, um, Israel developed its soft units from essentially a guerrilla or insurgent organization. You mentioned the Palmach in the beginning. Do you observe in your research or, or in the context of Israel that organizations like Hamas, Hezbollah, that they develop their own soft units? And maybe that the question would be, is there then a counter soft mission that the IDF has to think about? Absolutely. You're, you're uh, spot on. Uh, they are going into this uh, direction. Uh, obviously, this is uh, for, for them, I think it's very natural because they are, in essence, guerrilla slash terror or whatever you call them, but irregular. I would call them, they come from uh, irregular tradition um, and asymmetric warfare. So for them, it's very obvious. The Hamas has its own units. Uh, for example, they have their uh, frog units, uh, command, Navy commando units. Uh, Hezbollah has uh, the uh, Raduan forces, as they call them, which are hit uh, 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 penetration uh, raiding uh, units that are supposed to cross the Israeli border and to uh, to take the offensive in, into Israel. Uh, of course, they are they they work in uh, collaboration with the uh, IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which also by themselves are. Um, uh, type of uh, for irregular force, but highly equipped and highly trained. And um, uh, the fact that uh, we look at them and we say, these are not really soldiers, they're not state, state soldiers, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, we have the equivalent of the Javi, uh, the Gil, uh, and we have the, the people who are, who are operating them. Uh, so during the course of the training, maybe you get to shoot, you know, the infantry soldier in the platoon, maybe he gets to shoot one or two a simulator maybe in training, but the uh, Hezbollah, um, uh, the Hezbollah um, Operative. uh, op operatives uh, who, are, uh, who are using the Cornet missiles, they go to Iran and they get to shoot 10 of those, maybe sometimes 15, so sometimes they are much better trained than, than our, own, their, our own soldiers. So, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we understand now that we have to take them very, very seriously.
these are not uh, amateurs. That's a fascinating point. Uh, Al, did you want to add anything? Um, more as a sociologist, that talking to Palestinian uh, scholars, actually, they see the, the Israeli state as a model for them, all the way from nation building, uh, education system, health system, welfare, and so on. And what we see in terms of the special forces is exactly the military expression of this sort of emulation of the enemy. You can't say that out loud, but it's part of, uh, of uh, their way of thinking and operation. So just a footnote to Eitan. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I, I would also, um, I will add something about the recruiting because I sensed this was an important, uh, important topic uh, that you raised. Uh, the, whole, the, whole, the whole issue of recruiting. It, it doesn't come uh, from thin air. Uh, what we have here in Israel is that uh, already in high school, um, there are a lot of organizations that are preparing our youth for the service in the military, and some of them prepare them specifically to go through the very rigorous selection process in the, uh, in the elite uh, special forces unit. Uh, the, the, the young uh, boys and girls are very, very enthusiastic about it, and they start to prepare physically and mentally already in their 11th or sometimes even 10th grade, so two years in advance to prepare for, for it. Um, they, they also understand that it comes with a certain prestige and status, and it will uh, open uh, opportunities for them uh, uh, after the military, following the military service, so most of them, they don't join those units uh, to, to do a military career, but uh, they see it as a very important um, step in their development. And maybe Yal would like to also to add to that. Um, no, that's uh, more or less to the point. And uh, I think Christian has to fulfill his military duties in a few <laughs> short moments. I do in a second, but but. Itan, you raised something that I, 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 I want to highlight it. The idea that you, you, bring in a, you bring in conscripts and you enculturate very early this idea of serving in the military, serving in a professional sense, and then celebrating the transition into back into civilian life to go off and do fantastic things. And yes. I, would, I would be so bold as to say we don't do that very well. We assume that if some, I had a, a, a colleague say to me once, there's three ways out of the military and they're all bad. That's the, that's, that's the, the attitude, right? You either quit, you get fired or you die. You know, why aren't we celebrating when someone retires and goes off and starts a business or goes off and does something wonderful for their next chapter? We need to celebrate that more. It sounds like that. It sounds almost like you guys have cracked that code. I think, again, it goes to the difference between a, a conscript army and uh, a nation uh, um, a, a nation mindset that you are under constant threat and you have to do your share. And the way you do your share is through your military service. But yet it doesn't mean that you have to commit yourself your entire career for that military service. So please join and do your best. If you, do, if you do your best, society will reward you by prestige, by opening uh, different uh, venues for promotion in other uh, areas in life. 
but only uh, uh, a few select group will choose uh, to stay in the military and do it as a career uh, uh, for the for their entire career. So it's I, I think the, the issue here is a very different cultural yeah. uh, and historical setting. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the it, 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 it's it, it's not that we crack the uh, a code as you said, but it's just that we live in a very different yeah in, in a very different cultural setting. Fair enough. What, what is interesting about this to link it to what's going on in Eastern Europe today? These are the very discussions now countries like Poland and Estonia are having. Yes. We would we would call your model total defense. Yep. Every citizen has a role. The young, male and female, to be prepared to be good citizens, they go into the military. And in fact, the Poles are having the issue. They don't have enough bodies currently because they got rid of conscription. Right. And so it seems like the Israeli model could be very fruitful as an example for these countries that are going to have to rethink total defense in light of, of Russian adversarial aggression and invasions. And, and Kevin, talk about uh, recognizing your privilege, right? Those like those of us that live here in North America, this is, like you said, it's a culture. It's a cultural difference that, that we just, I don't think, fully appreciate. And I think that that really gets reflected in, in something, you know, like uh, as complex as force generation, which is what we're talking about, which I think is, is fascinating. Gentlemen, I would love to carry this conversation on, um, but I think we're going to call it full time. Um, thank you so much for your time uh, today and for uh, your persistence in finding a time that all works for everyone. Uh, and I do apologize because I think I started the problem. I think I was the first one that pushed it and then it just kept getting pushed. So I'm so grateful that we were able to do this today. Um, Itan, Eyal, really, thank you so much. Um, Thank you for hosting us. It's been really, really a real pleasure, and I hope to uh, continue the conversation in various, uh, various uh, channels. <laughs>